This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 10th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Our decisions should be rooted in the most reasonable parts of ourselves. After all, if you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice. Annie Duke is author of the new book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. We spoke during the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event in September. I try to remain alert to... Uh, moments in time when I should catch myself and stop and either change the frame of of my thinking on an issue or try to uh, you know put it into a bigger picture. And so a lot of our worst decisions that we make are when we're in pain or or desperate. How can people, catch themselves in these moments to make better decisions? I love that you asked me that question. So I'm a really huge fan of two things. Uh, Thing number one is saying we're very biased in the decisions we make. We're not particularly good decision makers, particularly in the moment. Um, And it's very hard to solve on our own. And I think there's two things that we can do in order to, to sort of help help ourselves in the way that you're describing. Thing number one is to get a really good group of people that kind of agree to a new type of social contract, right? So the normal social contract that we kind of walk around with is um, that if you're talking and I disagree with you, you sort of feel like you've had harm done to you, right? Like it makes you feel bad as if I'm sort of attacking your identity and attacking the things you believe. And so we tend to sort of just keep our mouth shut for one of two reasons. Like if I disagree with you, I might keep your, my mouth shut because I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I also might keep my mouth shut because I might be worried that I am actually wrong and that you'll think less of me for having spoken up. So generally what we're doing is just kind of like echoing each other's beliefs. And this is kind of the way that we interact. If we make an agreement with ourselves that, look, I can spot bias in other people really well. I'm not very good at spotting it in myself. But what that means is that I can imagine that you're probably good at spotting my bias. So instead of pretending like I spot bias in everything else, but I'm not biased, I say, well, I'm probably like everybody else. I'm just not good at spotting it in myself. So therefore, let's make an agreement. I'm going to watch your back. You're going to watch my back. And here is what we're going to do. We're going to change the social contract. We're going to decide that we're about trying to build the most accurate model of the objective truth, which means that we're going to try to reason not to be right. Just like, oh, look, the things I believed are true. Yay me or yay us. Uh, But we're going to try to reason to be accurate, which means that we're going to have to sometimes understand that like, uh, oh, there's a piece of information that actually causes me to rethink this belief that I might have. So um, that we're going to hold each other accountable to it, meaning that when I see that you might be reasoning in a biased way, um, that I am supposed to point it out to you, and it's not only that I'm supposed to point it out to you, but if you found out that I hadn't pointed out to you, you would consider that to be harm. And that's, you know, in a sense, that's what friendship is. It it should be. It's a responsibility. Yes. But what do most friends do? Like, here's a an interesting, like, friend conversation. Oh, my gosh, the last pen, 10 people I dated were such jerks. And you go, oh, that's so sad. Wow. That's so so awful for you. What friend have you ever heard say, well, do you think you might be picking 
people who are jerks. Or it might be you. It might be you. Like nobody says that. But of course, that's like a logical question that somebody watching that conversation from the outside would say. And that's because we think of friendship in kind of a different way. I agree with you. Friendship is supposed to be, let's like really help each other reach our long-term goals. But friendship very often comes, let's help ourselves feel good in the moment. So we have to explicitly say to each other, we're going to execute friendship in, in the sense of like the this. And so if I tell you about the last 10 people that I dated were jerks, if you don't call me on it and say, hey, maybe you should think about that through a different frame. And I found out you didn't call on me that call me on that. I should think that you have now done me harm. So it flips it on its head, right? And then and then what goes along with that is that we have to be approaching the world through the question of why am I wrong, rather rather than why am I right, which makes us very information hungry because we know why we're right. Like we can talk about why we're right all day. We want to go and look for all the counter arguments to what we believe. We want diverse perspectives. We want the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. And this is all kind of part of that. So that's like on the getting other people to help you side. So then on the other side, we have this kind of problem that you really pointed out, which is I can state what my long-term goals are, you know, be smarter and, you know, more successful and like have my beliefs be more true and be a better predictor of the future and to have my experience inform uh, the decisions that I make going forward and all these things. But in the moment, we're very poor at executing it. Right, because we're like we're trying to show off, or we don't like to be wrong, and it feels bad, or we're mad, or any of those things that can happen. So our in the moment decisions very often are foiling our ability to execute on our long term goals for a variety of reasons. So what we can do is we can say not only can we get kind of other other people to help us, but we can get other versions of ourselves to help us. So in other words, I can say to myself, "Hey, I know that when." I feel a certain way, right? Like my cheeks are flushing and my mind is racing and my heart is racing and all this stuff that I'm probably not going to be a good decision maker. I can also think there are certain things that I say in terms of self-talk where when these things are going through my head, it's very likely I'm not thinking about things very clearly. So things like, uh, this is so unfair. Why do things like this always happen to me? I can't believe that idiot had that. Ha- Why? How come they always get away with it and I always get punished for my stupid things or whatever it is? Like you can make a list for yourself of when you're in a calm moment, when you're not in that moment where those things are going through your head, you can say, hey, in the past, when the like, what are thoughts that have gone through my head where sort of like in retrospect, when I think about it, uh, that was a really big signal that maybe I wasn't thinking so clearly. So now you can write those things down for you. And, and literally looking at a list of those things yes. is, is extremely down. helpful. It's extremely helpful. Write them down. Write down the physical signs. Write down the sort of self-talk, the things that I might say to you, right? So you should know that as my friend, I should tell you, by the way, I'm going to show you my list. When I say these things, stop me. Right. So when I say I can't believe how unfair that is, you stop me and you say, Well, do you what do you mean by fair? Right. Like, do you think the world just happened to you there? Like, what do you think? You know, now you can start probing on that. Anyway, so make a list. It's going to be different. You know, some of it's going to our list would overlap, but we would have different things on it. Write it down. Now, first of all, show it to the show it to the people who are supposed to watch your back. But also write that down for yourself and make a commitment in advance that when you catch yourself saying those things that you have committed on that list to, that 
you will stop and you will think. And you will say to yourself, hold on a second. And you can do one of two things in terms of sort of recruiting different versions of yourself. You can say to yourself, like, if it were a year from now, how would I feel about this? So that gives you some time and space, right? Like it's recruiting future Annie into the thing. I could also say, if I were counseling a friend who were saying these things, so it's like situational, right? Like if I were counseling someone or I'm mentoring someone where I heard them with this kind of talk, like, what do I think I would advise them? And it allows you uh, to take that second. And what you're really doing is that by imagining the future or by imagining being in a different situation where you were, say, counseling somebody else, like this situational travel or this time travel requires the recruitment of your prefrontal cortex. Now, what's really good about that is all of this stuff that's going to come off this list is going to come from the emotional center of your brain getting activated. You know, you don't sit there and go, I can't believe how unfair everything is if you're not in this emotional state. So the prefrontal cortex, the place where rational thought kind of exists and lives, where executive functioning is, is an, uh, an inhibitory relationship with the emotional center of your brain. So it's literally, when you're emotional, it shuts down that front part of your brain. When you're doing math problems, it shuts down the emotional part of your brain, right? So by taking a moment, because you've made this list that sort of triggers this step back, where you, you now have questions you must ask yourself that automatically, in order to be able to answer those questions in any kind of reasonable way, recruits the more rational center of, of range, which, which actually inhibits and quiets down the emotional centers of your brain. And now you're going to be in a decision-fit state more often. So I work for the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian public policy organization, uh, nonpartisan, and uh, in watching recent events of the last three years, probably, it it seems that a lot of people's ideological commitments seem at once both extremely fluid and extremely fixed. And these commitments, uh, for many people in politics, it just seems to be that those commitments are based on personalities rather than ideas about how the world does work and how we can make things better. So when you talk about activating the prefrontal cortex, that seems uh, a pretty valuable thing right now for a lot of people who are uh, very uh, extremely vested in certain political outcomes. Yeah, so let me start just at the individual level in order to sort of, I think, get to what's sort of been happening in the last three years. So on the individual level, we have this, myth, really, that this is how we form a belief. We get some sort of piece of information. We think about it. We vet it. We're trying to, you know, we really put some thought into it, and then we decide whether it's true or not. So that's not actually the way that it works. And people can look at, like, there's work by Dan Gilbert, who wrote Stumbling on Happiness from the 90s that addresses this. The real process is We hear something, we believe it, and then if we happen to have the time or inclination, we'll actually vet the information. There's a very simple reason for that, that for most of the history of our species, there was no way for us to form a belief about something that we hadn't experienced for ourselves because we didn't have language. So um, here's a table, true. 
right? Like, I mean, I don't need to now start asking whether it's a mirage. That's kind of a wasted step. Um, then we develop language. I can now, you can now tell me about things that I've never experienced. Um, but we treat it as if I'm seeing a table. So you tell me something, I believe it. And then maybe I go through this vetting process. So then people say, well, okay, well, so maybe that's not so bad because, you know, clearly, even if we lodge it as true, we we obviously go through this vetting process, but it turns out that we don't. And that's that's where the problem is. So we hear things, we believe them, particularly when they have an, a strong emotional valence, when they're sort of feel like part of our identity, this belief that we hold strongly. Um, it's not that information then is driving the belief anymore. It's that beliefs are driving the way that we're processing information. So, we are attuned to what we are attuned to. Exactly. And not only that, it's so that would be under confirmation bias, right? That we notice things that agree with us and we don't notice things that disagree with us. But it's actually even worse than that. We reason in the, a way to confirm the beliefs that we already have, right? So – uh, it's a little, it's like data mining. So what happens is that so our vetting process might change depending on the substance of the information that we've been confronted with. Exactly. So when we read something that agrees with us, we give it a cursory glance and we go yay. When we see something that disagrees with us, we write a dissertation on why it's wrong. So. So now what happens is that the belief is now in the driver's seat in terms of the information that's coming across our path that then uh, causes us to in, to reason about the information in a way that just comes back in and reinforces the belief. So you can see that we get this circular pattern. It's called motivated reasoning. All right. So uh, it's reasoning toward a conclusion as opposed to the other way around, right? Having Having the conclusion that you want to draw drive your reasoning. Okay. So that's on an individual level that we're doing this, but now we can think about this as far as um, uh, sort of in the political scene on a tribal level, that we also think that our ideology, the things that we we believe um, from a like a, a policy, what policies we think would be good, like our ideology, that that's in the driver's seat in terms of what our political identification is, right? But if that were the case, that when a party shifted away from people, you would see this mass migration, right? So... As an example, um, if you're in a party where they're one of their central tenets, maybe one of the things that caused you to initially sort into the party is your your belief, for example, in free trade. And then all of a sudden the party's position changes and it it no longer it, it's now protectionist. If it were the case that the ideology that the things that you really believed on a policy level were in the driver's seat, you would see a mass migration, right? Like people would just exit and say, oh no, like this was a very important belief for me. Obviously, that no longer aligns with me, so now I'm leaving the party, but that's not what happens. What happens is that the party, the, the political party, which is the tribe, now is the, in the driver's seat on the things that you believe. So now all of a sudden, you, don't, you, you actually become protectionist yourself. So it actually, it actually changes your beliefs. There's lots of really great work on this. I recommend people looking at Jay Von Bavel and Andrea Pereira. They, they actually have some really good writing on this fact. So what happens is that the, the, the tribe is driving what you believe about policy, not the other way around, but we think it's the other way around. So now you change your belief, and then when I come and ask you about it, you give me all sorts of reasons why. But what it really is is that the tribe has changed the belief. And obviously we can see this on both sides of the aisle where you're, you're getting uh, a lot of sort of changes in, in what the worldviews on, on, on the two sides of the aisles are, but you're not seeing a whole lot of sort of exiting of the parties because tribe is much more important. So you can see it on an individual level and then you can kind of see it on this group level as well.
So what are some strategies for people who want to shatter the grand illusion of <laughs> their own uh, manner of thinking and uh, just be more careful about how they evaluate the world around them? So what I would actually really love is if, so I'm to the, speaking to the title of my book, Thinking in Bets, right? So that description that I gave of what is a decision, right? Well, you have your beliefs, the belief informs the decision you make, and then you make some sort of decision and a future occurs. That decision itself is a bet because all a bet is, is when you invest some sort of limited resource. So people would generally think about money on betting, but it could be anything else. It could be your vote, right? Uh, uh, your time. How are you spending your time? That's a limited resource. You can't spend your time on everything. Um, as an example. So uh, you can think about it like, what do you order at a restaurant? You, I assume you're not, I think Ivan Boska used to order like the whole menu at Tavern on the Green, but most people aren't doing that. You choose one thing, right? So it's limited. You only get to choose one and you can't, you have to eliminate all the other things. And when you're choosing that item on the restaurant, uh, like, you know, between the chicken and the fish, what you're imagining is which future is going to turn out better for me. And, and neither future is fixed, right? So uh, there's a set of possible futures that could occur for me ordering the chicken. Um, there's a set of possible futures that could occur for me ordering the fish. Like if I order the chicken, the chicken could be really dry. It could be mediocre. It could be the best chicken I ever ate. I could choke. I mean, it's a whole bunch of things that could happen. Same thing on the, the side of the fish. Um, and so you're you're sort of trying to decide among those possible futures. Um, so there's always risk involved in any decision we make, even the simplest decision that we have, because we have to invest these limited resources and it's honest, there's more possible futures than the one can, that can occur. That's really very much the definition of a bet. Okay, so when you're ordering the chicken or the fish, you're betting on the chicken or you're betting on the fish. Now, if we were to actually explicitly recognize that our decisions are bets, I think we'd be a lot better off. And the reason why is that we tend to walk around in the world in this very black and white fashion as if um, knowledge is known and certain. But there's pretty much nothing that we believe that is 100% certain. There's actually a really amazing book by um, Sam Arbusman that I recommend people look at called The Half-Life of Facts, which just goes through and shows like all the things that human have believed as like completely consensus opinions that people thought were 100% true that are just no longer true. Um, an obvious one, the sun, it turns out, does not revolve around the earth. But we thought that for a really long time as a certain fact, you know, just as an example. Um, so if we were to think about this frame of betting, what it does is it causes us to move into the middle, out from 100% or 0%, and into this place where we're what's called epistemically open, where we're saying, well, I believe it some percentage of the time. And so therefore now, when somebody tells me something new, I don't have to fight it off because I never thought I was wrong or right in the first place. I was like somewhere in between and I'm sort of open-minded to listening to what other opinions are. So I've actually tried this out with some people recently and, and I'd recommend that people try this, this sort of like uh, challenging people to a bet, which just brings the uncertainty up to the surface. So um, right now I've been hearing people say um, the Democrats are going to take the House in November. And when they say that, they don't say some percentage of the time. They say the Democrats are going to take the House in November, and they always express it with certainty. So I've tried saying to them, well, how much do you want to bet on that? And all of a sudden what happens is, weirdly, they're not betting their whole net worth on it. 
which they would do if it were certain, right? They usually will say something to me like, well, I didn't, I didn't say for sure. That's not what I meant. I, I mean, I mean like they're more likely to, right? So what's happening that's causing them to pull off of the certainty that they've just expressed is that by saying, hey, do you want to bet on it? I've reminded them that there's more than one possible future that could actually occur. And now what they start to think about is, well, what are the probabilities of those futures? And also, what are the certainties of of my beliefs that are informing those futures? And you're also uh, removing whatever emotional commitment that they would have had to the idea that X is going to occur. Right. Because I'm asking them to put something real on it, right? So... um, that's exactly right. So actually, in in that sense, I, there there was a way that I so I had a lot of people like telling me, oh, um, you know, the pollsters were wrong about the election. Now, the last time I checked on uh, five thirty eight, they were saying sixty five thirty five in that week leading up. Yeah, Nate, so, Nate Silver was very clear saying we're talking about two coin flips here, people. Right. Exactly. So all those people were like, he they were wrong. You know, he was wrong. What an idiot. I, I said to them, okay, so I have a coin that's going to flip 65% of the time heads and 35% of the time tails. Um, are you okay with me risking your life on it landing heads? Well, no, <laughs> because it's going to land 35% of the time tails. I was like, yes, that's exactly what happened. So what it does is it causes you to go through like these questions of like, why do I know the thing that I know? Like, how sure am I of the beliefs that I have? What are the things that have informed that belief? What would be an argument against my belief? Like, what don't I know? Why is this person challenging me to a bet? Like, what is what is it that they believe that they're saying that they want to bet me? So I, I mean, I can think about that in terms of the election that's coming up in November. Like, November's pretty long away. I mean, I think it's like five weeks away at this point. Like, there's a lot of stuff that can happen, like, that I have no control over. That's just luck. I mean, it's a pretty volatile world right now. I don't know what's going to happen in those five weeks that might swing people's votes. Um, I don't know enough about gerrymandering to understand what the generic vote has to do with what might happen in, for example, Wisconsin, because I don't know enough about what the districting looks like. So I start to think about what my own knowledge gaps are, right? So I think about the two sources. There's a lot of luck that can happen in five weeks, and then my own knowledge is incomplete. So it just brings that uncertainty to the surface and where I can start to say, well, I think they're going to, you know, they're most likely to take the house. But I'm now recognizing that it's not 100%. So I, that's why I love this frame, like that I wish that people were thinking through this frame a lot more. Uh, Brian Kaplan uh, at, uh, you know, he's affiliated with the Cato Institute. He's a professor at George Mason University. And his view is about uh, predictions about the economy, about the world and things like that. He basically argues, well, if you're not willing to put money on it, I do not take your opinion seriously on a whole host of subjects. Yeah. I completely agree. You know, I, I actually, there, I, I talk about this in this the book. Anna Dreber did did a study where she was looking at uh, people might be familiar with. There's a kind of a replication crisis in social psychology right now, where there's a lot of results that were sort of taken as gospel. This is actually a good example of why you should hold your opinions pretty loosely. A lot of results that were sort of taken as gospel in that field that turn out aren't replicating well when uh, you're using. Um, what, there's a lot more understanding about uh, statistical power and whatnot, and like study design. And so when they're sort of going back in to do these with with kind of these new methodologies, it's turning out that they're not replicating. So she uh, had people sort of in a peer review sense, 
look at studies and, and predict whether they would replicate. And these are obviously experts in the field. They, they're people that might be, you know, peer reviewing on a journal, right? And then they also put those exact same people into a betting market. And what you found was that um, when it was sort of just their opinion, they were, you know, 50-50-ish. But when you put it in a betting market, all of a sudden they were like more like 75% to be able to predict it. And what's the difference? It's the exact same people. Well, in one case, they're just offering an opinion. Like, what's the consequence to that? Like, I mean, there's certainly a consequence over your lifetime in terms of like, there's if you keep getting it wrong, there's going to maybe be damage to your reputation. Maybe, right? Because people have to aggregate the data, which we're not good at. But once you say like, it's going to be a prediction market, like you're actually going to bet money on it, you create a consequence that realizes right away. So you you basically shorten up the feedback loop for people. And all of a sudden you get, you know, you sort of reveal what their real opinion is that way. There is, uh, on both left and right, there is this, I don't know, I guess you call it a divorce in some ways between what how the world actually functions, data, uh, and uh, what people believe about how things work. For example, immigration. Um, there is, you know, it's vastly, the crime related to uh, illegal immigrants is vastly overstated in, in popular media. So for people who are genuinely interested in, I want to know what's real. Uh, there are a lot of competing narratives about out there about what's real. And there are ways of thinking about issues that are helpful, and but we're not necessarily encouraged to use those methods to get to reality by TV show hosts or or, or others. So for, for for people who are just like, look, I just want a, a, a you know questions I can ask or some sort of clarity that I can get that will help me be more skeptical and but also credulous toward things that are clearly true. Yeah. So actually, I think that, so I founded, um, I co-founded an organization called How I Decide, which is actually trying to address some of these issues. I think a lot of the problems is that we sort of believe that data is true, which it isn't, right? Because it's it, not, is, it not, is an approximation. Well, it's also it takes somebody, it's like, what data are you collecting? How are you presenting it? How are you framing it? What what types of analyses are, are you doing How is on it, it gathered? It's, right. It's an interaction between some sort of thing out in the world and a human being, right? right. So Humans are always the instrument through which we are observing the, the world. Data, right. So like, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a classic example. Like I can go get data and I could say, uh, you know, I, I could do a poll where I say, do you think that Trump is doing a great job or a good job? And then, it, and then in the same poll, ask people, do you think that Obama did a great job or a horrible job? Right. So now I can show like, oh, look, more people think that Obama did a horrible job than Trump, except that I didn't. Okay. Well, I have data on it, but obviously the way that I asked the question. Right. It's, right, it's so, a very extreme example. So I think that we're really, what we're trying to do at How I Decide is actually get people to, to be able to think through decisions, to understand what a decision is, to think probabilistically, and to get that back into our educational system um, in a way that it's sort of been disappearing. Um, uh, for example, in 1980, used, there used to be probability taught at every single grade up through eighth grade, and now it's mainly just taught in like seventh and eighth grade. So, we, you know, trying to get that back. So there was something actually recently that happened that I think exposes all the problems in the way that data is. So you you remember this whole Serena Williams to do? Yes. Okay. So the whole thing was like, oh, she, you know, she got the game penalty. I personally don't think you. I, I think you should avoid like the plague 
ever giving a game penalty in a Grand Slam final. But that, aside from the point, people were saying it was sexist, right? Okay. So there were two narratives that developed. The people who were trying to argue that it was sexist, the people who try trying to argue that it wasn't. And in both cases, you see the problem with the way that people react to data. You had this, well, Nadal got in an argument with the same guy and he didn't get a game penalty. So this is arguing by anecdote. So I think this is a lot of the problem with the immigration issue, right? Like this one person had a really bad experience where there was a crime committed by this immigrant, right? So this would be under the, well, Nadal did it and he didn't, but she did. And so that's that's arguing by anecdote as if that tells you something true about the world as opposed to it's like one little data point and we'd really like to see what the whole pattern is, right? And that was a very powerful narrative and people were pulling the anecdote because the anecdote supported the narrative and then people are like, you see, that's proof. And it's stickier. The, it's it, very, mentally very sticky. sticky. Now on the other side, there was a table put out on the New York Times, uh, in the New York Times, which was raw a raw data table which was um, all the, there was all these different categories of things you could be fined for, like racket abuse, um, coaching penalties, profanity, you know, so on and so forth. So it was like a list of like 15 of these things. Um, and it was Grand Slam fine, you know, Grand Slam, any Grand Slam match at all. Um, and how many fines would be given, given to men versus women. And it was like 1,500-ish for the men and 500-ish for the women. So then people were saying, you see, there's no sexism in tennis. But now this is another problem because there's we don't understand what's the, the what's the reference class, right? So I, I see that you're giving me raw data, but here's what I don't know. As an example, per minute on the court. So I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, men have to play five set matches and women have to play three set matches. So I imagine that men are on the court a lot more than women are. It doesn't tell me per minute played. It also doesn't tell me per instances of a finable offense. So when I see that men are getting more profanity fines, well, maybe it's because they're swearing a lot more. And actually, when you look at the total number of audible profanities, maybe they're getting fined at 50% of those and women get are getting fined at 80% of those. It's just that they don't swear as much. No, I don't know any of this because the table literally didn't tell me anything. But yet this table went viral as support for the anti-sexism argument. So neither I the, my answer about this is I have no idea if it was sexist because the anecdote doesn't really help me and this data table doesn't help me. And until someone tells me what the reference class, I, I don't know. And this is the problem with everything. It seems like uh, your book and what you're, in, in a sense, asking people to do or asking people to hold in their minds as as they go through the world. It's very stoic. Yes. I by the way, I, I end up on my Twitter, you'll see a lot of stoic philosophy like appearing as quotes. <laughs> that is that, that is, you know, give up your illusion of control. Yes, give up your illusion of control. Try to try to lose your ego. Um, you know, uh, the other thing that's actually really important is is try to learn how to lose that idea that when an outcome occurs that it had to be that way, that somehow it was unfair or fair as opposed to just part of the things that could have happened, to lose your emotional attachment to it um, and to ask instead, well, that thing happened, how do I learn from it? Which I think is really important. I think that we have this very strong tendency to look at the way that the world turns out and think that we can somehow perfectly derive what the decision quality was or what the inputs were. You know, that if there are 
unequal outcomes in the world, it must mean that there are unequal inputs as opposed to that, no, in some ways there are equal inputs and in some ways there are unequal inputs and we should focus on the places where there is inequality in the input. Um, that is a matter of things that we can control. We can't control unequal inputs as far as genetics, for example. Like there's, I, I can't help that one person is tall and one person is short or one person is fast and one person is slow or whatever that might be. But there are certain things like access to education. Like we, we can have some control over that as an input. But we need to recognize that even if somebody, even if two people were the exact same height and the exact same intelligence and, you know, the exact same education, that the outcomes in their life still aren't, aren't going to turn out the same. I mean, for one thing, one of them could just be driving along one day, go through a green light, and someone could T-bone them, and boom, the whole course of their life has changed just due to luck. Annie Duke is author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.